0: Course, the United States overnight attacking an Assyrian airfield. Stephen Cook is a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he joins us now. Stephen, thank you for being with me. Um, you know, this decision comes about three and a half years after President Obama's effort to threaten Assad with uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, with military action after an earlier chemical weapons attack that killed hundreds of people. Uh, He even used the term a red line. Uh, What does this say about what's happened in the last three and a half years and whether there needs to be a policy change?
2: Well, I think the last evening's strike is a reflection of the fact that you have a different administration uh, and that President Trump, who ran hard, obviously, against President Obama's record and ran on restoring uh, American strength and credibility around the world, couldn't ignore uh, Bashar al-Assad's chemical attack. Uh, It is, um, I think, a strike that is intended to send a message to the Syrian leader, as well as his Russian and Iranian backers. But I don't think it augurs a major shift in American policy towards Syria.
0: Does it uh, send a message to other nations, such as uh, China? We know that the president is uh, meeting with uh, President Xi Jinping of China at Mar-a-Lago.
2: Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Certainly the timing with uh, a major world leader uh, having bilateral meetings with the president is, uh, it, it makes for uh, an important demonstration of American resolve, especially since the president is going to be talking to the Chinese leader about North Korea. What my contacts in China are telling me is that Xi is probably going to shrug this off, take note of it, and actually welcome further American entanglement in the Middle
0: East. Why is that? Because they feel that the United States will protect their oil lifeline in importing oil from the Middle East to China? Well, it
2: pins the United States down in the Middle East um, and takes its attention away from developments in, for example, the South China Sea or in relation to North Korea. Um, This is from the Chinese perspective. Those parts uh, of the world are within China's um, sphere of influence. And as long as the United States is engaged in the Middle East, there's less attention that can be paid to Asia.
0: Well, you know, Stephen, earlier in the program, I was speaking with Leonid Bershitsky, Bloomberg View uh, columnist, uh, joining us from Berlin. And uh, he made it clear that Russian President Vladimir Putin is not interested in a direct military confrontation with the United States. Having said that then why place uh, Russian uh, troops and or aircraft in a particularly, uh, well, in a in harm's way, perhaps, but also uh, to play this kind of uh, game of chicken flying uh, over the Baltic and Eastern Europe? What is the intent?
2: Well, I think it's clear that the Russian president is interested in reestablishing Russia as a global power. Uh, Syria, in particular, has been a bridgehead for the Russians to reestablish their influence throughout the Middle East. During the Soviet era, the Russians were quite active in the Middle East. Uh, And Putin clearly has a strategy in order to... make russia great again in the middle east at the very least
0: okay but having just but but i want to want to then turn that on to what you just said having to do with china that if the chinese are are in a sense uh, happy that the united states is going to be pulled or is moving more into the middle east in terms of its attention then wouldn't the same be true for russia and if it is Then, you know, what does Vladimir Putin want? I mean, you give him a medal that says, all right, you are a world power. Great. Now stop trying to turn things into a fight.
2: I think the the Russians and the Chinese have very different calculations. The Chinese pursue a foreign policy that's essentially a mercantilist one. And you alluded to it before. Uh, That is to ensure um, that energy supplies flow out of the region. And thus far, the United States has been willing to ensure that, provide the kind of security for that, um, that allows the Chinese to enjoy um, enjoy the, the, the energy resources of, uh, of the Middle East unfettered. The Russians have a very different calculation. Um, from the perspective of uh, Vladimir Putin, the end of the Soviet Union was the worst day in the world, and that Russia is a great power that should be directly involved in the Middle East, because the Middle East is relatively close to the Russian homeland. Russia has problems of its own with Islamic extremism. Well, you had
0: the bomb blast in St. Petersburg, Russia, in the subway that began the week on Monday. That's
2: that's exactly right. And the Russians believe that um, support for uh, leaders like Bashar al-Assad, in contrast to uh, the United States, and this is from the Russian perspective, which welcomed uprisings against these leaders, um, the Russians perceive that if these leaders fall, these authoritarian dictators in the region fall, it'll bring uh, to power uh, Islamists and, Islam- and Islam- Islamist extremists. Pardon me. It, it, it's result- kind of
0: ironic, isn't it, though? I mean, no, on, the, is, on, on the one hand, they're talking about combating terrorism, and yet the terrorism continues, uh, and then that they still keep a, the same pe- people an, in place. That
2: is an irony, of course.
0: The United States attacked Syrian air base with a barrage of cruise missiles last night. Retaliation for this week's chemical weapons attack against civilians. President Donald Trump casting the U.S. assault as vital to deter future use of poison gas. He also called on other nations to join in seeking to, quote, end the slaughter and bloodshed in Syria. Here to tell us more is Tony Capasio. He is our Pentagon and national security reporter for Bloomberg, and he joins us from Washington, DC, uh, Tony. What can d- detail can you add to what we already know about these attacks?
3: Okay, well, well I picked up this morning that the operation, <clears throat> the operation came together in about twenty-four hours. The Navy actually did two rehearsals of it. The two vessels involved the two rehearsals of it, and they both. This is fired, the
0: USS Ross and the USS Porter, correct?
3: Right. They. Uh, I'll give you some detail. The the Ross fired thirty-six. Of the latest model Raytheon Block 4E Tomahawk cruise missiles, the Porter fired 40, uh, 34 of them. Each uh, missile took about 45 minutes to 60 minutes to hit its target, and uh, there were backups in the with the Bush Strike Group in the Persian Gulf in case any of these missiles malfunctions. And those, those both those ships took did a two rehearsals, from what I was told, where they went through the dry runs of. Uh, launch sequence, and actually launching. So it came together pretty fast.
0: Now, the governor, the Syrian government, uh, the governor of the uh, Homs uh, province, uh, Talal Barzari, he said that uh, some Syrians had been killed and others wounded, but there were no precise details. Do we know anything about the results?
3: Uh, not yet, but, I mean, it's plausible. They, they picked that time, 4.40 a.m., when it was minimal there'd be minimal activity at the airbase. So that's pretty standard for these type of operations. You know, it's conceivable that some, some people were killed. I'm not going to discount that, but I don't have any insight into that now.
0: All right. And let's uh, talk about the uh, implications for this with the meeting that President Donald Trump is currently having with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. What kind of signal do you think that sends to him about one of their big topics, which is North Korea's nuclear program?
3: Well, I think the... Chinese and North Koreans now will have to reckon with the fact that they're dealing with a U.S. president who moved pretty quickly, albeit with a uh, precision limited strike. but he moved pretty quickly to retaliate with the minimal consultation with Congress. You recall during the Vietnam War, the Nixon Wanted to invoke the kind of a madman theory with North North Vietnam in terms of whether he, you know, just how much he would do, what he would do. Well, maybe there's a madman theory at play here. Trump showing that uh, he's quick, impulsive, fast on the draw, and uh, that might send a chill up North Korea or. uh,
0: well, Rex Tillerson, uh, Secretary of State, says it clearly indicates the president is willing to take decisive action when called for. Hmm. What does this mean for the U.S. relationship with Russia? Because, of course, the president has called for greater counterterrorism cooperation with Russia.
3: I think the impact will be minimal because the U.S. took pains; they contacted the Russians through the uh, they call this deconfliction link that was set up there because over airstrikes. You know, we t- we tipped the Russians off. And locally, we didn't tip them off through at the Moscow level, but we tipped the Russians off locally that this was going to happen. The U.S. those cruise missiles were precise enough; they did not hit the the, uh, airfield areas where the Russians were were sleeping or are stationed. You know, we give them advance warning. And you know, Pim, I think. It's going to show that the Russians did not tip the Syrians off. That We don't know that definitively. We'll know that later today. But I don't think the Russians tipped the Syrians off. There was no indications of planes taking off ahead of time. So I'm not sure what the long-term implications on U.S.-Russia relations are. I lean toward it might reinforce the fact that we can be trusted allies
0: does it also change the dynamic when it comes to vladimir putin's support of president bashar al-assad that indeed perhaps they are not as strong allies as previously thought
3: if the russian reaction is muted i tend to agree with you there that the rush the relationship with syria is not as uh, close as we thought. I mean, it depends on the reaction from Russia, and so far it's been fairly muted.
0: Well, uh, the U.N. ambassador, uh, the Russian uh, deputy U.N. ambassador, Vladimir Safrakov, uh, he warned that any negative consequences from the strike would be, quote, on the shoulders of those who initiated such a doubtful and tragic enterprise. Is he just using diplomatic language because he's got nothing else to say?
3: Well, that's, that's the first cut of outrage. I mean, the follow-up will be more important in terms of what impact it's going to have in Syria. Uh if the Russians start painting or uh illuminating u s planes with their radars in act in an act of uh peak or retaliation of- Subtle, not subtle, but a retaliation short of firing missiles, that'll be more of a leading indicator than whatever words come out of the U.N. ambassador.
0: Tony, what about uh, Steve Bannon and his uh, departure from the National Security Council? Uh, do, he uh, has previously spoken about the uh, U.S. being overextended uh, outside uh, America. Do you think that the, the National Security Council's change had anything to do with this?
3: Yeah, I think one one change is that the Pentagon was allowed to plan this on their own fairly quickly without a lot of back and forth with the uh, National Security Council. I think that accounts, in some respect, for the fast for the rapid nature of the uh, of the operation that, that the Pentagon was able to pull this together on its own without without a lot of uh, mother may I from the National Security Council.
0: Indeed. Uh, just a last point to you, Tony. Uh, what's next? Uh, do we just wait and see, or is there going to be some uh, detail about some change in policy?
3: I think it'll be a—what what, what we're going to learn more from the Pentagon today is the battle damage assessment, the, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of a military a, a, a attack aftermath. I think you're going to see maybe a letter to Congress from the White House— asking for an authorization for use of military force on Syria. I think that that's one possible, plausible follow-up.
0: All right. Well, we'll leave it there, but we look forward to you covering this topic for us. Tony Capaccio is our Pentagon and national security reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from Washington, D.C. This is Bloomberg. The unemployment rate falling to 4.5%. That's down from 4.7%. Why no cheers? Well, payrolls only adding 98,000 jobs last month. Economists were looking for about 180,000 to be added. Here to tell us more about the report and it's the factor of wages is Al Agresani. He is a former assistant labor secretary under President Ronald Reagan. Al, thanks for being in the studio. And also joining us is Carl Riccadonna. He's the chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg intelligence. Al, let's uh, come to you first and just make your case about wage growth. 2.7% increase year over year. You say that's not enough.
1: No, it's not. Good morning, Pam. Um If you look at wage growth over the last 20 years, it's been steadily uh, going down. And there was hope that with this recovery, which really started eight years ago when the Fed uh, eased monetary rates in the Obama administration, that now with the pickup in the um, with the Trump administration and the change and all the things people are talking about, that we would finally see wages get back to growth, which would be really an indication of a real sustained long-term recovery.
0: What kind of number are you looking for? If you don't like 2.7 percent, what would, what do you think would work?
1: Well, if you go back to the historical standards when really we were in real, real 3 to 4 percent GDP growth uh, – uh, Rates in the in a growing economy, you're looking at four to five percent wage growth. That's needed to sustain a long term recovery.
0: All right, let's go to Carl Riccadonna, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. What do you think about this four to five percent wage increase? Do you think that would do it?
4: I think that would certainly uh, help uh, fortify uh, economic momentum and maybe push us back towards, uh, let's say, 80s or uh, 90s-style growth rates uh, from the 2 percent, which has plagued the economy over the last uh, eight years.
0: What's What's the relationship, though, between wage growth and productivity?
4: Well, as workers become more expensive, uh, then employers will uh, look for ways to minimize that uh, input cost, and so they invest in capital, and you're seeing it from uh, automated uh, uh, register clerks at uh, fast food uh, joints. uh, Or no
0: clerks at all where you do
4: the checkout yourself. That's increasingly popular. Exactly, or self-checkout in a grocery or retail uh, outlet. Uh, And so uh, as wage pressures pick up, you'll get uh, more productivity gains. But we've had relatively cheap labor over the last 10 years or so, uh, so there's not been a lot of incentive for employers to make those types of investments. That's changing now because we are seeing – a bit more wage pressure.
0: All right. Having having said that, Al, to you, uh, if indeed we are entering a period of more rapid automation, uh, where will the wage growth come from if indeed the wages that employers will have to pay can alternatively be put into artificial intelligence, robots, and uh, even, dare I say it,
4: offshore?
1: Yes. Well, we have a... Let's add this to the equation, we have a secular change going on in the economy that speaks to this. The secular change is what you're talking about, the move from labor to tomorrow automation, etc. And you could see it in the retail job numbers today, 30,000 down. That may be the beginning of what we're starting to see as all these uh, malls are closing and the retailers are pulling back. So that's a sign of what I'm talking about in the secular change. And
0: do you think that that comes, what, from the competition from Amazon and other online retailers? Did that sort of stands in the way that, of these wage absolutely. increases.
1: And that's code for automation, isn't it? Yeah. And I see it in my business, too, where all data and information businesses, I mean, the turnaround business, are now becoming commoditized. So where's the value-add going to come from that drives wages in the future? It's got to be from intellectual capital businesses. It's got to be from value-add, from people that are providing insights. And that's the only place that I see where you're going to have the ability to demand more wages.
0: That sounds like high-skilled workforce. Absolutely car ricardona i mean is there a chance that you're going to see this wage increase if indeed what you just described increasing automation so that really the only wage increase you're going to see is people who have some kind of intellectual property uh, that uh, puts them in a in a absolutely. position absolutely
4: Th- that's where it will be concentrated uh, but uh, i mean there's less Job security, whether it's lower union membership or uh, robots taking jobs or or Wall Street or just the internationalization of the or the globalization of the workforce. And so that means that the Phillips curve still works. Uh, This is a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, uh, but it's flatter than it has been in past economic cycles. And
0: I don't want to make too much of this because clearly this is not the focus of the wage, the 2.7% year-over-year wage increase. But uh, we learned earlier in the week that uh, BlackRock, for example moving away from some managed funds to replace them with more automated exchange-traded fund or indexed products. That also is part of this trend.
4: Absolutely. So the point here is that you're not getting as much inflation or wage bang for your buck uh, as the unemployment rate moves lower at, compared to past cycles, which means that maybe full employment going into the cycle, uh, Fed forecasters and whatnot, were thinking it could be five and a quarter percent. Correct. And it was five percent. Then it was just below five percent. Now we're four and a half. And so last fall, if you recall, Janet Yellen threw out the idea in an academic forum that maybe full employment is materially lower than forecasters currently anticipate. And as we see unemployment rate grind, grinding down and we're not getting the weight Wage pressures yet that reinforces that notion.
0: Al Agrasani, what's your prescription for an increase in wages?
1: Well, I think that back to the secular trends, I mean, while there's a change moving on to automation and lower skilled jobs are going to be replaced, you have to look at the positive side of the secular trend. And we talked about this on one of your shows a couple of years ago where we discussed that we could. Potentially become again a nation of entrepreneurs, people who are either in, who either have skills that are that can command a higher wage, like in the intellectual capital businesses, or people who have the ability to start and start and sustain and run their own business. But
0: aren't those people already doing that? I mean, by definition, I mean what is going to move the two point seven percent number higher?
1: Well, what's going to what's going to move it higher is if you're uh, if you're making a choice to become an entrepreneur, right? And you're in a startup business that you're going to have a. a, a a more a greater demand and, uh, to hire somebody uh, than somebody who's in a big corporation like Walmart who can replace that body at any point in time. So if you're looking for wage growth, I think it's going to come from the very high end of the intellectual scale, and it's going to come from the more entrepreneurial end of our economies.
0: Thanks very much. Al Agrasani, he is the former Assistant Labor Secretary under President Ronald Reagan. And our thanks, of course, to Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Always a pleasure. All right, let's turn our attention now to headline economic news. Uh, the unemployment rate down to 4.5% from 4.7%. The economy adding just 98,000 jobs last month. Economists were looking to add about 180,000 jobs. One of those economists was Vincent Reinhardt. He is chief economist, Standish Mellon Asset Management. He joins us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. Vincent, thank you for being with us. How'd you get it wrong?
5: Uh, great introduction, Pim. I, I, I like starting on the positive note. <laughs> and the answer is I most of us just forgot it was cold in March. Uh, part of it is weather. Part of it is let's calm down a little bit. The payroll employment is a, an erratic number. The Bureau of Labor Statistics tells us that a 90% confidence interval will, around monthly changes and net payrolls is 100,000 plus or minus. What, what does that mean? That means that if you thought it was 180,000 uh, expected this month, uh, you wouldn't be statistically proved to be wrong if the number came in between 80 and 280,000. Oh, well, I guess that that makes it very easy, doesn't it? It makes it perfectly easy. Yeah. Uh, the good news is, in a statistical sense, I wasn't wrong.
0: Okay, all right. So that's like bumpers, you know, on, on, in a yeah. bowling alley. All right, so yeah. you're contained. So if, so if we... Well, so,
5: let's take the, you know, let's take this in perspective. Yeah. First, there were weather dislocations. Uh, that's and, and we see very strong uh, employment growth from the household survey and weak on the establishment survey. That's probably because when the BLS comes around to a household that's at home because they're not working because of bad weather, they they're, they believe they're employed. Whereas you go to the establishment and ask them, "Are you? How many people are working for you today?" Uh, they give them a lower number. So average the two. Um, a low number and a high number. Okay, so we're not going to go we're not going to go crazy about
0: this. Uh, seemingly, what the bond market is doing with that big move higher in the long bond. Uh, if that's the case, then what are the particulars of the report that you think are specifically interesting? Is it the 63 percent labor participation rate? Is it the 2.7 wage growth year over year? What number or what part of the report do you find most useful?
5: Uh, that 's the great thing about payroll Fridays. If the BLS puts out a twenty plus page report there's always going to be something that's interesting. I think there's a couple things of note. One is Janet Yellen's basically been right. You run a, a accommodative monetary policy and you may very well draw workers into the labor force. Uh, in fact, there were very large gains in in uh, household Households so on the order of 472,000 people coming into the labor force. Um, that's why the unemployment rate uh, uh, goes down. We have payroll, rather, unemployment uh, persons in the household report fell by 326,000. So that's good news. That's so that's good news. So Among why would people
0: other- be bidding up the price of the 30-year by 15, 30 seconds? Why are we at 2.96?
5: Well, the world's a risky place. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but it was risky do, last week, too. Yeah, but maybe it feels a little riskier <laughs> okay. uh, The other, I, I think part of it is actually average hourly earnings. It came in as an increase of two-tenths of a, a, a percent on the month, and the 12-month change picked lower to 2.7 percent. So if you think the Fed is going to be acting because they're worried about inflation, then the Fed should explain to you where's the cost pressure.
0: Got it. So don't worry about that, at least right now. Worry about something else.
5: Right. The Fed's, Fed's got a plan. They're going to be renormalizing monetary policy gradually. Nothing in this report says they can't fulfill that plan.
0: Well, Vincent, uh, you know, just to pick up on that, on that point, I want to go back to the FOM uh, meeting minutes uh, that were released mm-hmm. uh, earlier this week about unwinding or dealing with the $4.5 trillion balance sheet at the Federal Reserve.
5: What, what are your thoughts there? Uh, so what first thing to observe is they're trying to telegraph it as uh, as clearly as possible because most of the people making those decisions are still shell-shocked from the taper tantrum when slowing asset purchases uh, threat to produce such a big reaction in markets. Uh, second thing to note is... Um, that they view it as in part a substitute for rate action. So they're basically telling you there's three more press conference meetings this year. The next two, they'll raise the funds rate a quarter point. The third one, they'll tell you they're slowing asset purchases, uh, uh, reinvestments so that its balance sheet will very gradually shrink.
0: That's a, a good way to put it. Thank you very succinctly. Appreciate it. Vincent Reinhart, as always, he's the, ch- he's the chief economist, Standish Mellon Asset Management. He wasn't wrong. He was within the margin of error. This is Bloomberg.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Tim Fox.
1: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.